but you know the end goal is for an indigenous person to come into a banking center or a branch and to pull out their status card and to have it recognized as an acceptable form of government ID and to allow them to open a banking account without or cash a check without discrimination, without um, a teller picking up the phone and calling the police because it looks suspicious. Um, you, to me, it, it's it's the, the the end goal is that it's a seamless client journey, the one that most of us, if not all of us in this room have, um, that simply doesn't exist today. Financial services is one of the most important sectors in our economy. This is an industry that touches everyone, whether it is saving for retirement, getting a housing loan, financing a new business, or using a credit card. And with that comes the potential to exacerbate or remediate inequalities. We've all heard the story about a married couple where the male spouse got a higher credit limit than the female spouse on their new Apple credit cards, even though they share finances. And we probably all know that still so little investment goes to women-owned businesses relative to their male counterparts. And what about the fact that women are more likely to live in poverty after retirement, in part because of the gendered nature of savings and investment? Welcome to Episode 3 of Designing for Everyone, a podcast by the Institute for Gender and the Economy, or GATE. I'm Sarah Kaplan, she, her pronouns, and a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, founding director of GATE, and your podcast host. In this seven-part limited series, we are featuring a high-impact set of conversations we had in April 2023 at our Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference. In this episode, we're going to hear from practitioners and academics about how a gender lens, an Indigenous lens, and more broadly, an equity lens on financial services can create new business ideas, identify new opportunities for improved returns, and achieve a more inclusive economy. In this panel session, we'll hear from a number of terrific experts. First, Kelly Baldoni is Head of Global Women's Strategies at Impacts Asset Management and Investment Advisor to PAX World Funds. She oversees national sales and marketing initiatives for the firm's gender lens strategies and is a product specialist for the PAX Elevate Global Women's Leadership Fund. Stephanie Kelly is an assistant professor at the Sobe School of Business at St. Mary's University in Halifax and was previously on the faculty at the Western University's Ivy Business School. Her research focuses on the ethics of analytics and AI in organizations, including in bank lending. Sylvia Kwan is the Chief Investment Officer at Elevest, a technology-enabled financial services company built by women for women. She is responsible for creating the investment solutions, strategies, portfolios, and proprietary algorithms that drive Elevest's investment recommendations across both automated digital and customized private wealth advisory services. She guides the firm's investment philosophy and leads the development and due diligence of LFS impact and gender forward investments. Mayan Marcin Godar is director of social impact at Scotiabank, where she leads strategic investment initiatives related to economic resilience, diversity, equity, and inclusion and reconciliation. In her previous work at CIBC, Mayan's mandate supported the socioeconomic empowerment of indigenous peoples through the development of equitable policies, processes, products, services, and educational tools. The conversation was moderated by Jackie Vanderbrug, who is Head of Sustainability Strategy at Putnam Investments, where she leads a host of key ESG-focused business functions. 
She came to Putnam from Bank of America, where she most recently served as head of sustainable impact investment strategy in the chief investment office for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. And importantly for us, she's also author of the book, Gender Lens Investing, Uncovering Opportunities for Growth, Returns, and Impact. We'll post a link to Jackie's book in the show notes. These experts will take you on a tour of all of the risks and opportunities available in financial services if we just thought about designing for everyone. Take a listen to what they had to say. Let's dig in um, immediately here, kind of, Kelly, can you start us out? Impacts was one of the first entrants. Back when Sarah and I were writing about this a decade ago, Pax already had a product. Um, can you talk about this women's leadership, uh, Global Women's Leadership Fund, and the motivation behind it? What, what was going on? Yeah, thanks, and thanks for um, inviting me and Impacts to be part of the conversation. Um, I think we started our gender lens investing journey back in 2007 before that was definitely a term. Before it was called that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I actually joined the firm in 2014 and had no idea what gender lens investing was, but kind of quickly learned from Jackie and other kind of pioneers in the space. Um, but we're investment managers, right? So I love all the different perspectives that we've already heard from today, you know, but from the seat that I sit in and what motivated us to get, you know, into this space was really to, you know, deliver strong returns um, to our clients. So we, you know, build products for investors. And our goal is to, you know, help them grow their wealth over time. And so at our firm, it was definitely the business case or the investment case that linked company performance with greater levels of gender diversity. Um, when we started, it was definitely looking at the leadership level. So who was making the decisions at those companies? Were those teams diverse? Because the research tells us when they are, they should outperform their less diverse peers. And so that was, you know, kind of simple and straightforward and a concept we had super high conviction in and said, why aren't we creating a product that's just investing in those companies that have greater levels of diversity throughout the top of the organization? And, and let's try to deliver that, you know, alpha or, or performance um, to our clients. So that was definitely where we've begun. It's been a long journey and a lot of evolution that we'll kind of talk about today, thanks to the growing data that we've been able to, you know, capture and um, get deeper into company profiles and um, a more robust gender lens. So yeah, for the past, you know, 10 years, we've been refining and building an impacts gender score that helps us identify and rank companies um, that we think are doing a a better job than the rest. And so that's that's been our approach, kind of our motivation. We have even higher conviction now than when we started. The, the research, the data, the evidence is all there. And we've started to do some of our own too, which is great. That is fantastic. And if we go back to the beginning panel, data is everything. Data often feels like it's everything in, in our worlds for sure. So Sylvia, um, your chief investment officer of Elevest, a firm that developed a fintech product aimed at women investors. And oftentimes people don't even put women and investors in the same sentence. Um, can, can you give us your sense of what was the problem that you were trying to solve or what was more likely the opportunity you saw? Yeah, so, so in, in the US, uh, women control more than $5 trillion of wealth independently and over 11 trillion jointly. And they're on track to manage uh, two thirds of US wealth by 2030. Yet, despite this wealth, women are underinvested compared to men. And there's a, actually a, a study by BlackRock that 
it is annual and it doesn't budge. It basically shows that the average U.S. woman's portfolio is more than 70% in cash. So that means savings accounts, checking accounts, under the mattress, you know, anywhere but in an investment account. And in fact, I think the same study shows that um, 38% of women don't invest in the financial markets. More than half feel like the financial markets is just not for me. It's not for people like me. Um, and so that's what we call the gender investing gap. Um, and it really has some very dire consequences for women if we cannot narrow it. So if you think about, you know, women kind of starting in the hole with the gender pay gap, you know, earning 82 cents for every dollar that a man makes. And if women are not investing the earnings that they're making and allowing that amount to compound, and then women live longer in general than men. And so that wealth has to last six to eight years longer. Um, you know, it's, it's really no, um, you know, no, uh, no surprise that women, um, you know, retire with two thirds the wealth of men and um, are 80% more likely to be impoverished in retirement. Um, so basically women are just not set up for financial success. So, so that, that's the problem. And that's the reason why Elevis was founded. And, you know, I would say sort of in, in um, our path and our journey to really build the financial services company for women, what we found is it, it's women are not investing because they're not in good, they're not good investors. In fact, the research shows that women are generally better investors than men are. And it's not because they're not willing to take on risk. Um, it's largely, we believe, um, because the financial industry was built by men for men. Um, and there's actually some interesting data that backs this up. There's a, um, a study recently, I think a couple of years ago or last year by BNY Mellon, um, where they interviewed uh, a number of asset managers and 86% of them admitted that the, their default customer, so the customer that they build products for, that they communicate to, is a man. Um, and we all know, you know, at least in the U.S., the financial industry is really dominated by men. So that's really uh, the problem that we're, we're trying to solve is how do we figure out how to remove those barriers to bring more women engage with their investing, engage with their finances so they can be set up for financial success. Yeah, thanks. So many uh, challenges there, but also a bunch of myths that you busted right in that little little intro. Um, let's continue to expand the circle. Mayan, your focus has been on indigenous financial inclusion. So you and others have said um, equitable banking is a human right. And Sarah appropriately sort of set us up as that there are, there are human rights here and then there are regulatory <laughs> realities and, and things that we all live with. But I'm really curious because your, your recent work at one of the largest financial institutions in Canada, you, you've looked through what kind of adoptions um, are required or are helpful in, in a, creating products and services that actually address needs of marginalized groups. Yeah, thank you. And I, I do want to just preface to say that um, when Sarah and I first met and when we were having great dialogue um, leading into this conference, I was at CIBC. And a lot of the work that I'll be talking about today is the work that I did at CIBC. Today I'm with Scotiabank. Um, and I can explain that, but off the record. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, um, banking, I believe, is a human right. It's something that I completely took for granted when I was on marketing and sponsorship for, for six years at CIBC. 
Um, it wasn't until I was invited to lead the Indigenous client segment within the retail world um, at CIBC did I realize that there are massive disparities. Um, and there's two components to this, and this is not a science. Um, any of us trying to tackle these issues, this is early days. We weren't talking about this stuff even five years ago. Um, and so from, from us, from our position at CIBC, there was, there was two distinct territories. The, the one, the first one is the more obvious one, um, is around building equitable products and services that meet the needs of a distinct, um, and marginalized segment. With the Indigenous segment, we were looking at three key areas. The first was around housing and, and specifically mortgages. If you are a First Nations person and you live on reserve, you uh, don't own the property that your home resides on, which makes it incredibly difficult, and I would actually say impossible to get a mortgage, um, something that most of us probably in this room can't imagine and, and take for granted the, the, the right and access to a basic mortgage. That leads to the second piece, which is around lending as a whole, and capital is a theme that will come up again and again, um, because there are huge disparities there, and um, it is difficult to obtain capital um, or any lending product if, if you don't have um, those those basic things to to lend off of, such as uh, such as your home. And um, but more more uh, granularly is um, you know, the ability to build um, a, a credit score. And that lends, that leads to the last piece, which is around just basic banking. 15% um, of uh, First Nations people do not, are unbanked in Canada. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one can be um, geographical. You know, it is difficult to, to bank if you are, if your closest branch or banking center is eight, 10 hour drive from, from your home. Um, there's also cultural reasons for it, but the major one um, in my mind has to do with the discrimination that a client might and likely will feel engaging with a bank in Canada. Um, and that leads to the, the second pillar, which is around truth and reconciliation. And um, the fact that we as a financial institution and all of them have to recognize and say that we are a part of the colonial system, um, that we, our business model has been built on exclusion, discrimination, racism. Um, so the first piece is, is easy. You know, we're really good at building products and services, but the hard part is truth and reconciliation. And for those who are in the financial space and in any sector um, and industry, you know, I, it's, easy to want to rush to reconciliation, but we cannot do that before truth. And that is the harder part, is to re reflect back on the role that we have played in, in a colonial society. Um, there are major and there are active and passive examples. Um, you know, a major example could be uh, the Métis scripts and the role that financial institutions played. More passive examples would be how branches resided in communities where re residential schools were doing their banking with us, where those priests were coming to us to do their business. And we need to understand that and look back if we are, um, if we truly want to do things differently, which is the theme we've heard uh, this morning, 
Um, but that takes a lot of a lot of work um, and a lot of raw authenticity. And so, you know, to to go back to your original comment, you know, Canada does uh, purport to be a very rights-based nation, um, but it is an imperative on all of us that we rec recognize the disparities that really do exist when it comes to rights and financial institutions, because we are an essential service, um, need to lead the way in that rethinking. That's super helpful and gives us a lot to actually jump into as, as we keep going. S Stephanie, um, as we think about financial services, we're so aware of all of the information about individuals that institutions um, amass, right? Either because individuals give it or they get it from other peers, competitors, the government, there's just, we're awash in information and, and all the more so obviously as, as AI is, is coming at us. Um, you've done research about how the collection of data in, on gender can shape wealth inequalities. And I'd, I'd love to get a couple of findings that were surprising from your work and, and specifically this question about how omitting gender doesn't necessarily um, reduce gender bias or, or other pieces, and maybe connecting back to what Maya's talking about also in terms of this question of where is it that we've made rules or shaped processes that were intended to do one thing and actually resulted in something else? You've hit on quite a few points from the paper there already, Jackie. So um, tying into kind of what, what Dory said this morning, I mean, there should be, I personally believe, end of one, there should be a lot of excitement around AI, but there also should be many, 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 many reservations um, about it. And it you know, makes me nervous as a researcher in the space. But um, the paper that we looked at touches on so many things here, but who collects the data and why, right? So while we do have a wealth of data and we have lots of information, that most definitely is not representative of all of the customers or stakeholders, I know that the term came up that we are actually serving. So when we then build models, um, no matter how great they are, uh, you know, from a, an algorithmic sense, they are going to perpetuate the information that's in there. So uh, the, the key finding the, of the paper is um, when you build lending models, particularly for individual lending, in, in most instances, gender is actually predictive of creditworthiness. I'll touch on why in a second. So if you don't include gender in your predictive models, they are going to be more discriminatory against the minority populations than if you do. So in most instances, minority populations tend to be represented by women. There's of course lots of intersectionality there. Um, so why does this happen? Is the data that we collected is very representative of the majority population and how they obtain creditworthiness and what's representative of being creditworthy. In, in your example that you've mentioned there, you know, having or owning your property is representative of wealth or creditworthiness in one population, but not in the indigenous population. So if we have data that's very representative of, of, of one area group or group of individuals, and then we continue to perpetuate that, we're just further excluding those, those, those groups. Um, so that's one, you know, you must include gender if you actually want to reduce discrimination. And, and that's very different from things like the Fair Credit, you know, Equal Credit Opportunity Act in the U.S., which were based on 
non-model, you know, type discrimination. They, they said, you shouldn't have gender. You shouldn't have... Because the fear was if you have gender in the same way that we had, if you had race, you might not get a loan in a certain... Yes. Or you might not you, get a mortgage in a certain area, right? Redlining or other pieces. So having lack of the data identifiers was supposed to make it more equal. Absolutely. So policy, which came up before, that was based on previous types of decision-making, human to human, right? It was a lender, a person making that decision. Now those laws are being applied to AI, and we're seeing that they're, they're paradoxically kind of irrelevant and, in fact, can be more harmful. So that's one. And then um, we said, why does this happen? Is because the data is not representative. And then it goes back to the, the design of policy moving forward. So policy moving forward needs to allow for the responsible, I say responsible collection of data and the diverse collection of data. And so it'd be interesting, you know, who's designing those policies was the discussion that came up. Um, you know, that's a, a question maybe for another time. How do we make sure that those policies are more inclusive and allow for the correct data to be collected? That's great. And actually, there's a number of questions coming up. So we'll sort of pause and dive a little bit deeper here because folks want to know about the nature, both of the analytics going into these different scores and the nature of the scores themselves. So maybe we'll pop back over to, to Kelly. When you talk about a gender score, can you can you unpack that for us? What goes into it? And, you know, are there changes in the analytical processes that you have either in terms of collecting that data or, or analyzing it um, differently than, than existed before that you needed to create the product? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's constantly evolving, you know, because the, the data is evolving and we're getting more of it over time. So I mentioned, you know, we started back in 2007, but it was in 2014 when we um, created an impact gender score. So we have about five, five or six now um, expert analysts that make up our gender analytics team. So I don't know if there's other firms that, that have that, but I'm pretty proud um, of these individuals who many of which have, have been working um, on this data collection for, you know, since the beginning, since 2007. But our official score launched in 2014. And at that time, it was really relying heavily on the leadership data. So, you know, we're collecting um, data at 1,600 public companies, mostly large caps. So our starting universe is the MSCI World Index. Um, and we're essentially looking at the representation of women in the board, looking to see who's chairing keyboard committees. So like the audit committee, compensation committee, et cetera. Then we look to see women in management. So executive leadership, specifically seats um, that would include uh, CEO and CFO. So not you know just trying to capture the token woman on the board by any means, but just who's making the decisions at that company. So that's kind of where we started. Um, and then essentially we would rank them one to 1600 and we'd invest in the top 25 and, and we would do that analysis um, every year because it's very manual. We do, a, you know, we take a lot of data from public, you know, filings and, and websites. And then we also have diversity data providers. Um, and then our team kind of gathers it all and, and analyzes it. So that's where we started. But what's changed and evolved over time that we're really excited about is the additional gender criteria that we've been able to add or, or gender indicators that really rely on and kind of look at the workplace policies and practices. So things like, is a company um, doing a pay equity analysis um, and disclosing the results of that? Do they have proactive diversity goals and targets? 
what kind of retention and promotion, you know, practices do they have within the organization? Um, are they disclosing employee demographic data? Are they signatories to the UN's women's empowerment principles? There's about 18 indicators that we now have. So that's come a long way um, from where we started. And it's really just because of what we were able to gather. Um, you know, we're looking at a global scale, so it's not, um, you know, a, a small set of companies and data can be inconsistent. So our researchers take it very seriously to try to get the best consistency across the board. You know, our approach is a, is a systematic one. So we're really trying to get, um, you know, kind of take uh, our eyes or our thoughts out of it and, and just let this data shine through and deliver that alpha that we kind of pointed to. So I'm really excited the work that our gender analytics team has been able to, to accomplish over the past eight years, really um, capturing, I think, what is one of the most robust, you know, data sets that's out there right now. And um, I can share later just on some of the results of like how that's gone and delivered alpha over time too. Yeah, it's great to hear the, the progress. And it is interesting, the regulators in different parts of the world um, requiring and, and you're seeing, especially in, in Europe, a uh, um, coming explosion of, of more data on the, on the social, on the um, human side uh, to, to catch up to some of what we've required on, um, on the environmental side. Um, Sylvia, folks want to know um, what kinds of design properties or what kinds of data did you collect or are you collecting to, to sort through what are the financial products um, that women want, right? How do you actually overcome some of the barriers that you talked about? Yeah, so, so when we started LFS eight years ago, we really spent hours and hours and hours uh, with women, uh, interviews, research, and I've been in financial services for my entire career, so I had a hypothesis of what women wanted. And, um, and you know, we, we initially thought that, oh, women, you know, want to be emotionally connected, for example, with their money before they start. And so let's take women on an emotional journey. Um, so that was a disaster. Um, <laughs> that's not what women want. And so we really had to kind of face our own biases um, on, you know, because, you know, just being in financial services, there's a lot of baggage, you know, that, that some of us have. So really, you know, starting from scratch and saying, okay, let's, let's actually talk to women and understand, you know, what are the barriers that they feel they have to financial services? What is it going to take to get them engaged with financing and with investing? Um, and what we found was, you know, women, for example, um, you know, ma maximum returns is not the only goal, right? They, they have, you know, investing is a means to reach a financial goal, such as retirement or sending their kids to college or buying a home. And so the approach itself needed to be very, very different. Uh, women wanted, you know, plain English, for example, they also wanted investments that align more with their values. And so a lot of the data that we, that we had in the very beginning was very qualitative and really, you know, what we really wanted to do was build this service alongside women. And so we did a lot of, okay, this is what we heard from you. This is what we have. How does that, how does that feel? And so doing a lot of just repeated user testing and user testing. So fast forward to now, we, we do now have many, many clients using our service. And so now we have a lot more quantitative data of how our clients are actually using the service. You know, we provide recommendations, but you know, how often do they take those recommendations? How often do they adjust them? 
And that is really useful information because that's part of his, um, you know, how, how are our clients behaving? Um, and so how do we iterate and refine our service um, to increase the probability that they will engage with investing? You know, where do they get stuck in the process and what can we improve at that point in the process to ensure that we really continue to break down those barriers? So now we have a lot more quantitative data, um, you know, what, what kind of goals women are looking for. And, and we are continuously using that data as alongside also doing a lot of user testing and research to, to continue to improve the service so that it really meets the needs and preferences for women. So again, I love the journey piece of this, right? We, we learn, we do better. And Maya, I'm going to come to you on the, the organizational journey in a minute. But Stephanie, just quickly, there is a question on the credit scores, which clearly are a hot button for a lot of folks. Um, any thoughts to, you know, this somewhat oftentimes opaque um, process that controls so much how to how to improve it how should researchers be looking at this any other commentary around credit scores so um very quickly the the models that we were looking at used actually four different credit scores and about 750 other features um so when we think of uh, very traditional credit scores being kind of one of the only things that control uh financial futures to moving to this idea where they're a very, very small part of it because they're not very representative of non-traditional individuals. Um, so one, look at institutions that don't rely entirely on credit scores. Um, it's a little bit different here in Canada. I know in the US credit scores are much, much, much stronger uh, and used for a lot of other, other aspects. Um, but spend your money wisely. Bank with banks that you know don't necessarily mandate those things, uh, choose lenders that don't necessarily mandate those things. Um, I think there is definitely a movement to shift away from that um, because they're just not representative. I know in the meantime, um, that's that's hard, but uh, there are institutions out there that uh, are designing products that you don't have to have those kind of traditional values. All right, there are other pathways. So speaking of pathways, mine, there's, there's really important organizational implications for doing this kind of work. We've talked about it's not one and done. Um, they're different journeys for different companies, but could you give us a little bit of a sense of the types of organizational challenges that leaders in the room might face as they're looking at some of these questions? Uh, so correct, this is not a one and done, a set it and forget it. Um, the work we're doing here is generations in the making. And it's really important to be grounded in, in that reality, uh, that this is a very, very long road and what we're doing is trailblazing. So in fact, there is no road yet. Um, you know, something was said, it was uh, Aaliyah in the, in the previous panel. Um, I loved it so much and, and she summed it up perfectly. Ensure that we're designing with the margins, not just for the margins, and that that can benefit all. I did really want to underline that, that point that she made. Uh, and so when it comes to the indigenous segments, um, we don't, we're coming from a place of, of uh, very little concrete knowledge, very little concrete data. The, the uh, sensitivity around data and how we acquire that is something that we're very mindful of. Um, and so, 
you know, one of the techniques we're able to use is to look at other equity deserving segments and women um, has, has made a lot of progress. And, and that is the one that we are able to, to look at in terms of a reference point and to be inspired by and to learn from and, and build from. And in the financial sector in Canada, there's a few things that really stood out to us. One was, um, it's a very simple um, observation, looking at all of the leaders of all the six major banks, all the CEOs, um, that they are all men. This is 2023, we have never had a female, a woman CEO. And that to me is extremely alarming. That to me is a barometer of the progress that we're actually making. Um, if we start to go down the hierarchy and the comment and the discussion around hierarchy is very interesting and very important from an indigenous lens. But if we go start to look down in, in the financial institution hierarchy, we start to see women um, at an SVP, an SEVP level. Um, there is representation, but and it was also touched upon earlier, and I'm so glad for the foundation that was that has been built earlier this morning, is that Although there are women in, in, these, in the, the, the corridor of corporate power, do we really know what to do with it? Have we been educated? Have we been mentored? Have we been taught in a way that we know how to use our power to empower others? And I, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and part of the reason is the third piece, the third observation is around ageism and how that disproportionately affects women. And that at some point, and it happened within CIBC just in this past year with who we all thought as women was gonna be the, the bank's first CEO. She became CEO, but of another company in another organization because we just don't have the construct to, to support women leaders. And at some point, those women disappear from our organizations, the ones that are our matriarchs, the ones that are our elders, the ones that can pass on that, the wisdom and the insights and the teachings that, that is necessary to foster female leadership in organizations. And so, you know, the system is very much built um, to not support us. And, um, you know, so all of that is are things that we mine to think about the obstacles and the challenges and the barriers that we will need to also overcome for the Indigenous segment and others. Thanks. I, I, my brain is going so many different directions, and there's fantastic questions coming up here. Um, so let me go to the the heart of some of what I heard you saying and, and also some of the, what was coming up before in, in panels with this question of um, how do we think about the power and privileged position of the institutions that we're each associated with um, when we're looking at the societal and financial sector changes that we think are in front of us, but also balancing to Sarah's intro, the fiduciary requirements that we have. Um, and, and realizing that each one of you are in and moving in and out of different types of power and privilege roles, right? In terms of Sylvia, your role as a, um, perhaps a startup, right? Not the, you know, 
amazingly backed, easily financed organization. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that one. Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And it's, a, I think, a complex question. Um, so I think a, along this journey um, that we've been on Elevus, you know, one of the things that um, I've certainly, and we, we as a team have realized is really kind of that responsibility and the, the seat that we sit in. Um, and so in addition to um, kind of removing the barriers and increasing access, you know, one of the things that we um, are really looking at is sort of like broadening, broadening our lens of what it means to, um, to be uh, gender focused. So for example, um, you know, there are so many gender gaps in financial services. And one of them, you know, not, not just women under investing, but you know, 99% of asset managers are actually owned by white men. And so that leaves literally 1% for women and people of color. Um, it's, it's no wonder that women don't feel welcomed in financial industry. And so one of the things that we are very focused on is how do we, how do we move the needle on that? So not only looking at the underlying investments, but who's making the decision? You know, are there women fund managers out there that we can support? Like, how do we bring more women to the investment decision-making table? And then also, as, as kind of stewards of, uh, of money, um, how do we get more money into the hands of women? So that means women entrepreneurs, women founders, women business owners. I mean, talking about lending, um, you know, the data shows that, you know, women business owners um, have many more challenges in finding funding. And when they do find funding, it's, it's at lower amounts and higher interest rates, for example. And so how do we put and use the power of our money and our investment dollars, you know, at LFS across our clients to make those changes and start to close more of those gender gaps through investing? Um, and so that's sort of a, a new um, kind of lens that we've been, we've been kind of moving towards over the last couple of years and just in recognition that it's it's just so much broader and there's so much that we can do. I mean, capitalism really is is one of the major changes of things. And how do we use our capitalism and our our position to make the change that we want to see? I'm gonna let others jump in here, but also add the the context of um, where Mar was going with the 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 um, win lose or win win side here, because at least in the US, we see some pushback, maybe we'll call it that, um, or, or significant um, blowback in terms of the concerns that we are um, over-focusing, whether it is on women or other um, previously excluded populations to the detriment of the overall good and kind of curious how you how you've crossed that I can at least from a research standpoint um, so the the research that we did we made sure that we weren't just talking about gender discrimination uh, we were also talking about profitability um, so if you're a true pragmatist and you don't want to listen to the the gender lens angle you can look at the profitability angle and in fact excluding gender from your lending models is less profitable for a firm so it's not only discriminatory, it's also less profitable. So as a, a researcher, I, I try and always have that, honestly, that kind of negative or that pragmatist view of, well, if you don't want to listen to one part of the story, how do we make sure that we present this and show that, that this is, in fact, good for business, 
even if you want to be kind of colorblind or genderblind or whatever you want, th these kind of negative terms that we use. So um, as a researcher, I always try and have that, that dual angle. It's not always going to be able to be there, but uh, I really do try and design my work to, to show both sides. We know it's there, right? That's the whole reason we're all here. We, we know it's more profitable, it's better for business, but you just need to take that maybe extra energy to show it and to track it. Kelly, that's where you started. Do you want to jump in with your research also or any other experiences that you're having, you know, sort of in the current climate? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned I started in, in 2014. So I've been talking about you know, gender lens investing for a long time. And it's been really interesting to see kind of like the waves and the different challenges that have come at different times as, as you know, Jackie and many other people in the room now. Um, you know, at first it was like convincing people this was even smart. So it was all about the business case, all about the research, like, you know, these companies should outperform. And then, you know, in our experience, the first five or six years of our fund, we had great competitive performance. And then the last several years, we've trailed our, our benchmark mainly because we don't own energy. So we're a sustainable investment firm and, and we don't own any um, energy names. And, and that's going to happen over time, with, especially with long term you know, investment products like mutual funds and the, the fund that we have designed. You know, you're not going to outperform all the time. But what's been challenging for me is when gender doesn't perform, it doesn't work. And so you're just like your back's up against a wall a fair amount of the time. So that's kind of one challenge. Um, another to your, your earlier question, Jackie has been, you know, is our firm impacts walking the walk. So I can't be out there every day talking about this and what we want to see in companies and the data. If we're not, you know, kind of practicing what we preach and, you know, as an investment firm, we have, um, some offices in the U S but we're headquartered in the UK. We have a lot of progress to make on, on diversity, gender, and, and other, um, types of diversity as well. So we're not perfect out there either. So then you're kind of another challenge or kind of defense that you're playing. Um, and then, you know, gender is one dimension of diversity. So the past few years, it's been like, you know, finally, once I felt like there was some momentum behind gender lens investing, it was like, well, you know, with the killing of George Floyd and everything that was going on, certainly in the US, and I'm sure it was being talked about here in Canada, right? Like, um, that's great, but we want to see, you know, other lenses, maybe a racial equity lens applied. And so, you know, you're trying to create, obviously, as I, I started with strong investment, you know, um, products, but also what the, your clients and customers and investors are looking for and, and what they want to see, um, to Sylvia's point, you know, we're working with people that want to align their investments with their values, their beliefs, have intentionality behind where they're directing their capital. And so we have a responsibility to create those kind of products too. So kind of long winded, but there's been a lot, I would say of challenges, um, fun challenges in this space, but to just, as we're moving it along, um, what I am excited about is the, you know, our gender score that I mentioned, we did over the past year, a intense research project, basically slicing and dicing it um, with a quantitative tool that we, we had purchased at the beginning of last year to see is gender deriving alpha? Where is it coming from? Um, which components of the score are the strongest signals of alpha? How do we access more of that? Um, so we had a great portfolio manager, Christine Capabianca, that really led on this research. And just this past couple of weeks, we've started to talk about it. Um, so the long and the short of it is, is that each component that we, that we looked at 
um, was additive over time to performance. So eight years on the gender leadership. So women on board, women in management, female CEO and CFO, all positive results. The strongest was women in management. I think there's some nuances with that. Um, women on board, again, positive, but it was the weakest signal. We think some of that was kind of arbitraged away just over time. Um, but a strong and another component of the signal, though, was if you didn't own companies that had no women on your board, that was super additive to performance. So it was almost about what you what you didn't own in that sense. Um, but then we looked at those the kind of newer additions to our score, which was those workplace policies and practices I mentioned. So we have four years of data on those at the 1600 companies that we've been um, collecting that at. And those were all like off the charge. Like when, if our PM was here, she'd probably stand up at this point and be like, I got to just show you guys all like this chart because they were, they were really surprising just how strong that they were. So we looked at pay equity as a signal. We looked at uh, companies setting diversity goals. Um, we looked at employee demographic data, disclosing that. And then we looked at if a company had three or more of those, um, so companies you could tell are pretty committed to an inclusive workplace culture and valuing diversity throughout the organization. And the three or more was the strongest signal by far, like over 20%. We were measuring kind of cumulative uh, returns. Um, so I have that data. If anyone really wants to dive in, I could share it after. But I was just super encouraged to see that, you know, this quote unquote is working. And that's definitely going to be the message that we're going back out there with this year is that um, even in times of underperformance, we can you know, tell you why that happens in a fund and, and that's going to happen over time. But it wasn't the fact that it was the gender score. And we have that that research and information now that I'm super excited to share because it's adding to the research that brought us to the table in the first place is that this is a smart investment concept. Can I go ahead? So, that? so, so I, I'm equally excited about the research that Kelly, we got a preview a couple of weeks ago about the research and that I think it's really exciting about. And I think, you know, both Kelly and Stephanie are you know, have, have talked about sort of like, you know, there really is a business case for investing in women and closing gender gaps. Um, and it, what frustrates me a lot is that there's always this perception that, um, you know, it's a zero sum game, that the economic pie is fixed. And so if I include others, that means my share gets smaller. And it's just so untrue. Um, it, it, you know, by including other groups, we believe, you know, you're actually growing the economic pie. And, you know, I'm sure we, we've seen the, the study from McKinsey that shows like, even if we narrow the global gender gap, it could add something like $12 trillion to global GDP. And that's just a lot. And so I think that, um, being, um, you know, des designing, you know, um, you know, closing, whether it's gender gaps or racial gaps, um, and bringing more of those underrepresented groups into the economy you know, grows the economy, which really benefits everyone. So it's, I think there's a very, very strong business case for what we're doing here. Um, and, and I love just seeing the data that's starting to back that up. Yeah, thank you. We, we definitely have this perception, and you heard it through the, all of the panels, of the, um, the fallacy that actually designing for with underrepresented groups means less, right? It's the dividing of the pie versus growing the pie. Mayan, I'd love to come back to you in this question because um, you were on the front lines in a, in a large organization. There's a question from the room in terms of, do we need more accountability? Um, do, does putting sort of KPIs or, or clear mandates on leadership drive that forward? 
Um, is it moral courage? Is it the business case? Can I, you know, what, what creates the push in the poll? Yes. All of, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it's all of the above. Um, there, there is a business case that says what's good for society is good for business. Um, there is the accountability from the brand, from the business, um, to have a voice and to publicly commit um, its stance and uh, its targets. Um, you know, I one of the reasons I was attracted to Scotiabank was their Scotia Rise program, which I am now in front of. It's a half billion dollar commitment to economic resilience into communities that we serve by 2030. It is a bold commitment, and it's one of those commitments where when you say it publicly, you will be held accountable for it. And to me, that was a signal that this was a organization that was prepared to walk the walk um, that is absolutely necessary it also um, leadership matters tremendously and I think we can all in the room now have a sensitivity we 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 know when a leader is being authentic and we know when a leader is reading from a script and um, it is imperative that, that we pay close attention and, and hold those leaders accountable, the ones that are reading from a script um, that is not sustainable. And I hope that this is sort of the last dwindling years where, and we all actually know leaders who, who, who are like this, that um, this, is not, this is not the path to change, is to have leaders who are truly uncomfortable and disconnected to what we're trying to accomplish. Okay, so we have 10 minutes left and I wanna shift our focus a little bit further out. Um, there's been a few questions coming in about um, what each of you would like to see either in you know, data or in practice. But so I, I sort of give you a choice, either if, if you could change something, if you could sort of, if, if you'd have folks behave differently, what would that be? Or something that you really are excited about, that you see coming ahead that you think we can get behind. Um, and Stephanie, why don't we start with you on the research side and then we'll, we'll go into orgs. Um, so for me, it's the, the democratization of AI. Um, I think on, on many, many levels. You heard it here first, she's excited. <laughs> I, I am, no, you're I, not. I, I really am. Um, the, the one that comes to mind is, um, obviously chat GPT is, is all over the place and there are many risks with it. Um, but there are some things that excite me. So for example, the, the coding, um, side of chat GPT for, so for those who don't know, um, you can kind of ask for, uh, computer code prompts from chat GPT and it'll, it'll source prompts for you. So if you're writing code, um, while there are quote lots of cool things, there's a very obviously recent study that came out that said about 17, 18% productivity increase just by using ChatGPT. So, um, you know, when we're designing algorithmic whatever models to be more ethical, whether that's less biased, more explainable, whatever, we can now be 17 to 18% more productive in doing that. There's greater accessibility. We can democratize AI so the people designing the systems 
start to understand and have access to more of those systems. Um, so hopefully we can kind of break open uh, the, the assumptions behind that. So the democratization of AI, um, and that's kind of everybody here is like, it's our responsibility to start digging into these things um, because it is becoming much more accessible than it was even, even a year or two years ago. Kelly, you want to jump in? Sure. Um, yeah, I think what we're excited about is more data. <laughs> we just we just always want more to, to have a deeper analysis, a deeper understanding of a company. It's really hard, as I mentioned, on a global scale and, and with public companies, when something's not required, they don't typically want to disclose it, right? So a lot of like, you know, the, the workplace stuff that I went over, that's like a binary. Do they have that or not? What I'm excited for is when we get to like, is that policy any good? Like the culture piece of a company. I think, you know, there's a lot of research um, that's already out there and is going to continue to come out that's linking that, again, to company performance, which is what, you know, we're trying to to capture from, from our seat as investment professionals. But um, how do we understand more about the culture of a company and how do we factor that into a, a systematic analysis, which is what, what we're doing. So I'm, I'm hopeful we can start to just dig in a little more to that. You know, like I, for example, I, I was just talking to a friend recently. Um, he works at Ernst & Young and they have six months parental leave policy for men and women. I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. Like his wife is pregnant. I was like, and he literally laughed and just looked at me and said that would be career suicide. And I was just like, so, you know, my gender analytics team is checking that off, right? Like, good for them. This is a great policy. But then you get underneath it. And, and I don't like tweet that about Ernst & Young. But, you know, like, I don't know. I, I just The same was true at Merrill Lynch, right? We had paternity leave. But so in the CIO office, the men were like, hmm. And it, it really did require a senior male to take paternity leave. And I had to have the conversation with him. So you have to take this. Yeah, because otherwise none of the younger men will. And also, by the way, it impacts all the women who do. Right. Right. If this, be, you know, how is it career suicide for you and not? So right. great example. Yeah. Sylvia, were you going to jump in? Um, just really quickly, I totally agree on, on data. Um, we'd love to get more gender focused data and some standardization on data because I think Companies will report data that makes them look in the best light, and it's not—it's just not easy to compare. So having that transparency is really important. And um, what I am excited about is just—I uh, would say—women investing in women. So really, you know, how do, how do we harness the power of our capital that we have and invest in other women and get kind of that flywheel going? And Maya, trust. Trust is the thing I'm really excited about. Um, you know, business won't happen until we reestablish trust among in the Indigenous segment, but um, all equity-deserving segments. Um, to me, that is the real indicator of success. Um, that is the thing that will take years and decades and generations to accomplish. Um, but to me, that is that is the end goal and the thing that I, I think about and work towards every day. And you think it's getting better? Because at least in America, trust in banking right now is not super high. What is accretive to trust and what pulls away from it? Wouldn't the banks like to know? 
yeah, that's 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 huge. Um, that that's a huge question. You know, I I think the the three key pillars are, um, you know, four are our policies, our practices, um, our products. I guess it's the four P's and our people. Um, are all instrumental to establishing trust. Um, but you know, the end goal is for an indigenous person to come into a banking center or a branch and to pull out their status card and to have it recognized as an acceptable form of government ID and to allow them to open a banking account without, or cash a check without discrimination, without, um, a teller picking up the phone and calling the police because it looks suspicious. Um, you, to me, it, it's it's the, the the end goal is that it's a seamless client journey, the one that most of us, if not all of us in this room have, um, that simply doesn't exist today. And um, and 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 to feel and to to remove that apprehension that many Indigenous people feel approaching. The, the idea of finances or approaching a literally approaching a branch that all of this could and may and likely happen um, that is what we're we're striving to remove so so if I can add um, to uh, what mine was saying is I think you know transparency I think builds trust and also I think engagement which is I think what you're getting to is is what we realize is the more, engagement there is so it's kind of about that relationship that is actually what engenders trust is that engagement and that relationship so you know when it comes to um you know financial services being able to engage more women or engage people of color and having that relationship is the piece that kind of builds trust as opposed to oh you know look at these numbers look at our performance like that is not something that builds trust with women and and not just and it's it's the what, but I think more importantly, and we talk we don't talk as much about this is the how, the how we do it, and and which which is what you're touching on, you know, um, key things like in in inclusive thinking and and having indigenous voices and viewpoints at the table, but also things like being aware of of how we've contributed to the colonial system, being sensitive to our biases understanding that what we might perceive as a good intention is not likely might not be received that way balancing urgency and patience you know we as banks we're very competitive we always want to be the first to market and be the best um but to also know that if we get it wrong we have you know, we have destroyed any opportunity to rebuild that trust and so there's these principles about how we do things that is really critical to to the trust building so that concludes the discussion on inclusion in financial services but i'm hoping it is just a starting point for you to see all of the opportunities that can come from rethinking financial products and services with an equity lens Thank you for listening to this special edition Gate Audio Production podcast on Designing for Everyone. If you haven't listened to them already, I hope you will check out the other six episodes in this limited edition series and other Gate Audio podcasts, including our signature podcast, Busted, where we bust common myths about gender and other forms of inequality. 
Just search for Institute for Gender and the Economy where you get your podcasts. Of course, you can help us get the word out by liking and following the podcast and telling your friends. We are nowhere without our community of listeners. If you want to keep learning, head to our website at genderanalytics.org, where you can discover our online course offerings and much more. This podcast was produced by me, Sarah Kaplan, and edited by Ian Gormley. We are grateful for support from the Rotman School's TD Management and Data Analytics Lab, who co-hosted the Gender Analytics Possibilities Conference with GATE. See you next time.